Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of old friends with a ton of records and history between them, Kelly Stoltz and Spiral Stairs. Spiral Stairs, aka Scott Canberg, is a founding member of indie rock Kingpin's Pavement, a band he formed in Stockton, California with his high school friend Stephen Malkmus. What started as a noisy ramshackle outfit bloomed into one of the most important and influential bands of the 1990s. Their albums have only grown in stature over the years, getting the sort of deluxe reissue treatment that was once reserved only for the gods of classic rock. And though Pavement split up in 1999, they've reunited twice and are about to launch a pretty hefty tour of the U.S. and Europe. Outside of Pavement, Canberg has kept plenty busy releasing music under both his Spiral Stairs moniker and, for a while, as Preston School of Industry. He's had an incredibly prolific last few years, releasing three albums since 2017. The latest is the fantastic Medley Attack, which I'm probably supposed to scream since it has three exclamation points, but I won't. It was a record born of some hardship, including COVID, worldwide relocations, and most unfortunately, the sudden death of Canberg's bassist, Matt Harris. But those events resulted in what's probably his best solo outing yet. Check out a little bit of the song Pressure Drop, End of the Hurricane, right here. Canberg enlisted the help of several friends in making that record, including the other half of today's conversation, singer-songwriter Kelly Stoltz. Now, Stoltz is one of those guys who just has a knack for writing incredibly tuneful pop songs. If they were recorded with a little more slickness, you might mistake them for radio hits of the 60s and 70s. I mean that as a high compliment. Stoltz recently released his 17th studio album, The Stylist, and it's a great place to start in a catalog that includes plenty of stone classics. Check out a little bit of Your Name Escapes Me. As you'll hear in this conversation, though not necessarily in either of those songs, Stoltz and Canberg first bonded over a mutual love of Echo and the Bunnymen. Stoltz actually recorded a full album cover of that band's Crocodiles album, and Canberg joined him on some live shows to perform it. Weirdly, that led to Stoltz, who as a teen worshipped Ian McCulloch, to a brief stint as rhythm guitarist for the British band. Talk about Echo leads to talk about copycat haircuts of their youth, formative years working in record stores, and lots more. And you'll even get to hear two songs in very early stages, one that Canberg maybe wants to bring to his pavement bandmates, and one that Stoltz has started writing for his infant daughter. Enjoy. Well, it's good to see you. How was their tour? Uh, It was good. I went to England, and I went to France, and I went to Spain. Would you say those are the, the last fully rock enthused places in europe i know you're going to norway germany where you can probably make money at your level you know right there's nothing really going on in germany i think pavement shows there are even like really selling really bad and okay so yeah i think you're right uk you didn't go to uh ireland no i didn't get to go this time the trouble with dublin is it's always like a 6 a.m ferry one way or the other and it's just a punisher but you get to drink guinness you You stay up all night guzzling guinness and then it's just like pounding (laughs) headache and pounding surf and a you know and it's like and and you just arrive in england at like 9 a.m just completely irish france was great spain was always the best for me looked like from the social media stuff you put up it looked really amazing well i only i only picked the best angles you know but uh <laughs> i didn't show the the back of the room that was empty you know and a, oh. and a and a sad bartender waiting for people to come but uh 
yeah, in the UK, still still entertaining dozens of people a night in the UK. Yeah, you remind me of like the last of the, like the cabaret singers. Right. Yeah, we had a few cabaret moments. Uh, the best cabaret moment on the tour was the first night we were doing a T Rex cover of uh, Baby Strange. Cool. You know, it's ooh, ooh you're strange. Don't lay me, baby strange. Don't lay me, baby. So we played it in Manchester the first night and. Mike Joyce was there from the Smiths. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, we got to the last song of the night. We're going to do a T-Rex cover. And for whatever reason, Manchester was very much like play as long as you want, do what you want. So we got, you know, an hour and 10 minutes in and we did T-Rex. And it was like, you know, that first night where you're like, we've been rehearsing and we're here and the flying parts over the, the vans rented. The guys driving is cool. You're just so happy to be there that first night. Maybe you don't even play that good, but it's just fu- a lot of fun. And because sure. uh, it's like it's happening, you know, and I have nothing to do for 30 days, but just play music every night. And so it was uh, a really good vibe and we had a good show and it got to the last song and I had a tambourine and I was like, somebody's got to be on tambourine on this T-Rex. And um, I pointed at a friend of mine in Manchester and he was kind of like, I don't I don't want to do it. And I pointed at another friend of mine. She just blanked me, like looked at me like no reply. And somebody pointed at Mike and I was like, I don't want to ask Mike Joyce to play tambourine with my crappy little band doing a T-Rex cover. You know what I mean? Like this is way above his qualification and cool level. And he was like totally up for it. He's like, all right. You know, so he came up and it was just awesome. You know, I mean, and a really nice guy. And, uh, so that kind of set the stage for the the rest of the tour because I started getting those gigs where it's like you got 40 minutes and and then the DJ's on or yeah. you know we've got a curfew at 10:15 we got to shut the pub by 10:30 mate maybe Mike Joyce said, whenever he came to shows he got to dictate how long he got to play <laughs> had a great show in Liverpool and Will from the Bunnymen came which was nice and uh all those local you know probe record people and you know the the heads that you've read about in the all those buddy men books and stuff were there and how's will doing good he's doing good he's uh he's working on part two of his book his buddy men uh biography have you read that book have you read the book yeah 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 Yeah. yeah it's good i mean it's very much like story of his from his childhood on yeah it's a different approach i love that kind of history it's such a different environment from what i grew up in like he's coming out of that post-war like liverpool like it says in the book you know like there was bomb damage still around and his parents still like you know rationed and you know, <laughs> you know like yeah. my, parents, my parents never fucking rationed no know? mine either and the, <laughs> and the windows were all painted shut and you know i mean we had you know we had like you know like a lot of frozen meals and and uh beans but <laughs> but, but nothing like you know post-war england it felt moldy and damp and dark he's worked part two yeah where the band starts and you know gets into the meat of the the topic that probably the most lay fans other than like you and i would gravitate to easily i think it's a book that people if they read it whether they're a massive fan or not would enjoy it but they they are also like i need to know more about the crazy years and all that but all that's coming I kind of know this story, but for the people out there on this podcast, you know, like for both of us growing up, we were huge Bunnymen fans. I followed them around like in the early 80s and waited after the show to get their autographs. And, you know, like I had their posters on my wall. I got my got my hair cut like, you know, Ian McCulloch. I had this like beautiful kind of mullety hair, you know, long hair. Yeah, wow. I was going out with this girl and, and I went out and I went to this like, hair salon and said here's a picture of Ian McCulloch can you make my hair like that and they like they made it like that and I went back to my girlfriend so my girlfriend she was like I'm breaking up with you why'd you do that to your hair oh man (laughs) did you have a trench coat and all that I had a trench coat yeah yeah I I was I was into it and I I assume you were you were too and I was the same a few years before I had taken a picture of Simon LeBond and uh-huh. <laughs> my mom, I remember having this weird, I mean, like sick fantasy, but I remember my mom was a divorced mother and I would show her a picture of Simon Le bon and be like, isn't he good looking? Like, 
in my mind, I thought maybe there's some way I can get, fix my mom up with Simon Laban so he could be like my dad, you know. And um, but that's when I was like, you know, fifth grade or something. And uh, but yeah, I took a Simon picture in around fifth grade. And then once you kind of get off the main part of the radio dial or somebody older loans you cool records, then I then I started bringing a Mac picture to the haircut, you know, something yeah. a little more out there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I rolled the Mac for years. I would sit there with my with a tennis racket. My parents were working till six or seven at night. So I'd get home from school, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade. <laughs> and I would have a tennis racket and I had a lamp, like a tall, straight lamp that was looked like a mic stand. And I took the bulb out and I had this thing that was like a Mr. Microphone. You remember that? Like you would, yeah. it had like, a 70s commercial like hey ladies see you in a few you know and it was like yeah. it was just a microphone with a little amplifier and i somehow we wedged that into the socket of the light bulb and that was my mic and i would play crocodiles i would play the gray album lips like sugar yeah all that and just sit there and i would have my trench coat i'd have my hair up i would smoke in the house no way yes and my, my parents would be home in like two hours. They didn't smoke. And I would like, I had to do it. I just, for the full effect of it, like I had to have a cigarette. In front of a mirror. Yeah. And I would, <laughs> and I would just act like Mac or the Bunnyman. And I would literally sit on the couch with my dog and just be like, so Ian, uh, tell us about the new album. I'd be like, well, <laughs> this is the greatest album that's ever been recorded in the history of time. You know, and I would interview myself. Wow. And and you gave me actually you gave me that picture disc that's an interview with Mac. Oh yeah. For, in Australia, I memorized parts of it. Wow. I and I still remember that like wow. Australia is great except for the flies. There's flies in me hair, flies in my sudden tuna fish. I went to go see the Twelve Apostles and there were flies there everywhere. So many flies at the and I said, and it just it was like Mac came to mind. I was like the sudden flies in me hair. Flies and me tuna fish. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's touring. That's bunny men. We're deep. We're nerds. It's funny because how we met was kind of through a friend who gave me your cover of, of a crocodile's record, right? And then we ended up, you know, becoming friends and then doing a few shows, doing all those songs, and then yeah. and then, <laughs> you know, a couple years later, you end up being in the bunny men. Yeah, it was unbelievable. <laughs> you get my, you know, like I was so jealous, you know. Oh like, man! God, like I can't believe he's like doing it, <laughs> getting up there, playing all those songs, just like you. Luckily, had a career to fall back on and something cool that of your own that you were doing, and um, <laughs> you were able to move on at the age of about twenty-two. From I was still like hanging around back stage trying to get autographs at 25 and you were oh, really? you were you were already like in rolling stone magazine for your own achievements so <laughs> it's nothing that i wouldn't be jealous about that you had a good time it seems like i did wow. i got to see the world a little bit and play those songs and you know i mean you and i did the crocodiles concerts in 2003 and yeah. i didn't know you and i remember you came over to my house and we just played and i think we re kind of tried to redo the photo on the inside of the crocodile sleeve for like the poster for the show. Yeah. Yeah. And we were nerds and I felt like I met, you know, somebody whose music I learned a lot and looked up to meeting you. And then also like, we went so deep with the bunny men that we were like, Oh, I know this guy really well, you know? And, yeah. um, but you and I, we played that show in New York. We played it in San Francisco a couple of times. And I think, and we played it in Australia too. But I remember I did that, and then I played my own show with a band, and yeah. then I think we were like the special guest one. It was like the peppermint. It was like a proper early show, punk show for the Bunny Men in '81. I mean, I think we, I think we went on at one in the morning or something like that. Right. Yeah. And uh, I just remember going home with the worst case of tinnitus that I like. <laughs> I ended up writing a song out of it that became a a good successful song for me. Because I went home to Julian Wu's house and laid in the bed in that front room where I would stay in Australia, and my ears were just like, and I was like, I'm there, it's done. Like, this is it. I, it's like, never, maybe this is going to be with me. Like, this is what tinnitus is, you know, when you're yeah. young in your career, you don't know, okay, it'll go away. And I was like, oh my God, 
I think I got in at three and they just rang and rang until it was like seven in the morning and the bir- I could hear birds chirping outside. And, and I was like, okay, I'm going to be okay. Like I can hear just like, like God was telling me like, go to sleep. You're going to be okay. You can hear the birds chirping. Life will return. I've never really worn earplugs. I've never, I mean, there's times when, yeah, they ring after a show and stuff. Yeah, I just don't play loud enough. Is pavement loud? Like if somebody got up on stage with you and was standing there, would they say, this is loud? It would have been in the 90s for sure. And in 2010 probably, but this tour, we've turned way down. I kind of learned that from touring with Wilco, you know, like they, they play really, really light and it makes a difference really yeah definitely on your ears but it it also makes a difference where you can hear everybody and yeah i had an experience where i was in australia again and i don't know 2005 i think i was touring and this lady i knew lisa miller was opening for neil young on the greendale tour and the greendale tour was like a story thing with like actors and dancers and stuff and i think amber tamblin was like the main lady and her father was there the guy from twin peaks uh, the doctor he's a tamblin anyway it was one of the tamblin dads was there and he came backstage lisa opened and he came backstage and was like hey we need some dancers to come for the last song so will you guys come up on and it was like you know go on stage with neil young and crazy horse it was one of the greatest moments of my life that sadly is like pre-cell phone there's just no video of it anywhere but i got to go on stage and like do this like we're gonna save the earth dance with all these people and they were so quiet really stage and it was yeah it was the first moment where i was like my stupid band at like a club with 80 people in it is like it's like a rehearsal room. It's just like, yeah, let's let's get a <laughs> six pack and just play as loud as, you know, the amp goes to nine, you know, or 10. And it was like, here's Neil Young, who is just like, you know, the sound in that room. And on stage, it was like quiet. It was really interesting. I think as you get older, you kind of maybe you play better or I don't know. There's something where you're or it's just something you learn over time that like, it's cool to be a teenager and just be pumped and like loud and that's a thing and an energy but it's also like you can just bring it down and still sound huge like neil does or probably you guys do hey this is josh modell host of the talk house podcast We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, 
cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. I was talking to Al tonight about my gal about what to talk about, and we were talking about our first concert we ever saw. Yeah. And I saw the Thompson Twins. Oh, God. That's what everybody says. I, I unf- Unfairly maligned, I'm going to have to say. But the, the Thompson no, Twins. No, no, I think that's amazing. You're probably probably one of the only people I know who's ever seen that's one have ever seen the Thompson twins, but also being that's the first show. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was thir- I think I was 12 and Berlin was the opening act. So I guess Berlin was the first band I ever really saw, but it was Berlin and the Thompson twins and Allison, my fiance was, she's uh, six years younger than me. She went the next night in Toronto and that was her first concert. And so oh. she was like, I don't know, six wow she doesn't really know why she went like where were the thompson twins on a six-year-old's radar so we were thinking well that's kind of cool that our people who are so deep into music like that was our first show that we saw so i was we were curious what was the first mine was devo in 1980 oh dude oh Oh, my god that's almost better than the thompson twins no not really i mean it's no i'd say it's much better they were kind you know, I mean, but they were like a pop band, you know, they were like, they were right. like American Bandstand. And, yeah. So where was it? When was it? You know, it was like Devo and Kiss for me, you know, like. Wow. Two, two like cartoon bands. Right. Uh, uh, it was in Sacramento, California, uh-huh. in uh, at the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium. I think I was a freshman in high school, you know, uh-huh. Were, like punk rock had just started in Stockton. There were a few like punk rock bands that had played that were kind of playing around and stuff. And, but we hadn't we hadn't been to any of their shows yet. Everybody was just kind of learning about punk rock and you know, and then Devo was like the clash and you know we're on the radio. I got lucky, I guess, you know, kind of to, you know, kind of hear these bands and to be around these these older guys around a bunch of older guys who were really into like english punk yeah you always need an older brother or an older friend to help guide the way i was kind of in between you know i didn't really rock the boat like there was like what we called the aggies who were all the farm kids and then there was the suburban kids who were from more stockton so there was always kind of this like tension between uh <laughs> city kids and the, and the farm kids and yeah so music i think was a big part of that and kind of kind of made us feel a little superior a little more you know like maybe this will get be something that'll get us out of this town i mean i don't know why i was thinking that at 14 but probably was were you an mtv addict um not really we didn't really have cable i didn't have cable either i had to go to my yeah. friend's house and and i would just yeah guzzle, like guzzle capri suns and we'd just lay on the floor and watch mtv for hours really? all right yeah i had some friends in in town who were like who had cable and we'd watch it but i, mean, I don't know and then punk rock happened and and that just seemed so you know the bands that played in stockton and stuff it was just so scary and there was great energy to it who would come to stockton Oh, everybody came. It was like Black Flag came. Dead wow. Kids, DOA was really great. And then Sacramento was up just up the road. Right. Where every, you know, every band. Um, and, you know, the San Francisco was close. So my parents t- took us to a few shows up there that they didn't know they were taking us to. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a guitar before you started going to these gigs? How did you get a guitar? Did you get one for Christmas? No, it was uh, it was all kind of luck, really. I mean, I mean not luck, just like, uh, you know, just loved music so much. And then the Bunnymen happened, and then, like, you know, post-punk bands happened. And, and so I think right when I graduated from high school, Steve came, Steve Malcolmus came back from um, his first uh, bit of college. So he was like a year or two ahead of you or something? No, no, he was the same. He was the same, but he went off to uh, Virginia. Okay. And I I went to the community college in Stockton and uh, he came back and he was like, oh, you know, like I've got this, I'm playing guitar and, and because he was in a couple of punk bands in Stockton. So he'd already started kind of playing guitar and bass and, yeah. So he came back and he said, Hey, you know, like go, you know, 
buy a bass and we can start a band. Wow. Uh-huh. So we started, we started this like band that was just like, you know, basically Bunnyman REM covers, but like made a, we made them up. And okay. So I, you would just take the chords from something and kind of put yeah, your own. Yeah. Like yeah. try to, we're going to try to play do it clean, but it's just something else. Yeah. 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 Our own version, you know. That's how you do it. That's how you're supposed to do it. Yeah. So I just, I bought a bass and, and just played along. And then, wow. The guitar didn't come until, until, then I went off to college in Arizona and then I, I bought like a Mustang pawn shop or something. And then I started learning how to play guitar. Where's the Mustang now? Oh, the Mustang. The Mustang is going, is going to come back to me very soon. Uh, oh, that's great. I ended up selling the Mustang to a buddy of mine in Australia. It was after pavement broke up. Like, I don't need this thing anymore. Yeah, like yeah. Three or four years after that. And I was just like, Marty was staying at my house and I was just like, see those two guitars over there. It was like there was like a Mexican copy uh, jazz master as well. And I was see those two. I don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. And he's like, I'll give you 500 for me for each of them. I was like, sold. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he, so he took it back to Australia and it was all beat up. Like I hadn't played it for years. Yeah. It was, it was the first kind of pavement guitar. Wow. First couple tours. And it had this like uh, sticker on it from. It was called Getting Cooler, which was Stockton was famous in those days from for this thing called California Cooler. You know? Dude, that's what I came up on, man. Made in Stockton. Is that, that right? Yeah, yeah. Scott, yeah but it's, friends used to work there, and yeah, it was God, it's a it's just another another deep tie between us. That was my my first drunk was California Coolers. Yeah. Going to see the cure with uh my friend's older sister. Nothing like some like bad Michigan pot and a two. Two liter of California cooler and like a half pack of Marlboro Lights. It was just like, ah, oh, life couldn't get any better. All right. So yeah, I'm getting I'm getting the Mustang back because he he asked he actually asked me like, hey, do you want the Mustang back? Right. Just recently, and uh-huh. I was like, you know, what? maybe I should. Oh, he's so he's gonna... like, it's now worth five thousand dollars. <laughs> no, he'd say he'd sell it to me for what I he bought it for. So that's very nice. 500 Australian. That's great. Are you going to add it to, you going to use it at the gigs? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's just going to, I'll just end up selling it one day. So you don't, do you don't have a sentimental attachment to any instrument in particular? I think of you always playing the a Telecaster. Yeah. The Tele Deluxe is like my, that's my favorite one. You know, like I've, I think I found that in uh, Berkeley in uh, like 95 or 96. Yeah. And I just always, it. Do you remember, like, I use this guitar on that song and this guitar on that song? I mean, do you have that kind of awareness? Because I've met some musicians who just, for me, I'm a nerd. I like guitars. I like thinking about them. I like to take them apart and put them together. And I have a hard time selling some that I'm like, I that I had that, that was my only guitar. And I, I used it on this song and that song and, and that period. But do you have any do you have memories of I use that on this song or that song? Yeah, or? I do. I kind of do, but um, but I'm not really a, a nerd on like equipment and stuff, you know. Yeah. Like I'm just I I can barely like you know string a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you have somebody to handle that on the the big show. We've got yeah the pavement machine, as I call it, is 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 pretty good at that. Good. You just got to get up there and play and look good. We've only done three shows, so hopefully, hopefully we'll get uh, we'll get through uh, <laughs> the uh, the next fifty or whatever. We oh have my to. god! How do you feel at your age going off on this like length? I mean, I just turned. I'm fifty, and I just did thirty days of like twenty seven shows in thirty days. And it, granted, it was driving ourselves and hauling our own stuff, but it's it's it gets hard. That's why after the last. The last kind of record I did, I was just like, I, I just, I don't, you know, it's not, I'm, it's not working for me, you know, like it's, and it, the playing the show bit is the greatest thing. It is. You can actually play a show and, you know, have fans there, you know, like it's, it's, it's nice. Yeah. But all the other, all the in-between parts is really, um, yeah, it gets harder. You know, with pavement, it's hard. You're still traveling. You're still like away from family and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, and it's stressful. And, and yeah, but today I, I just went out and played uh, some golf for the first time in like a long time. And, and uh, yeah, 
my body is not the same as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sore. Oh man. I wanted to ask you something. I, I, this is something I always thought was a big part of my upbringing with music. I worked at record stores from like right when I got out of high school, uh-huh. right? What was the store called? It was called Record Factory. It was a chain, but you know, in those days it it was like Tower Records or Record Factory. Sure. And it was kind of it was basically still vinyl. The CDs were just starting to come in. Mm-hmm. And but you had cool people working there. And uh yeah, it was like a big part of my kind of musical upbringing and also and then it then that led to like a used record store in stockton and stuff and and i know you have a history of record stores as well yeah grooves. it is yeah grooves is a great store and it was started by a couple it was the it was like a mom and pop store Worked at record stores before that my first job was scooping ice cream at sanders which is kind of like a detroit area institution and it was a little bit like definitely the Henry Rollins, Ian McKay at the Georgetown Hagendas. I mean, it was like me and two of my buddies who were stoned all the time. Nobody really seemed to be in charge. So I worked at Sanders for a while and I was uh, living in Birmingham, Michigan, which is a very well-to-do suburb of Detroit that still had a little bit of personality and kind of independent businesses downtown. And um, there was a little store that had you know, you could get a REM poster and a Bunnymen t-shirt and they sold, you know, like clove cigarettes and stuff to kids. And so there was, there was stuff like a little bit of edgy, even within kind of a constrained well-to-do place. But I, I think I left Sanders because a, there were two stores, there was Harmony House and Music Land. And those were the two chain record stores in my neighborhood. And Everybody, you wanted to work at Harmony House because that was like Coca-Cola. You know, that was the real, that was the thing. Yeah, that was like Tower in Stockton. It was like- exactly. I mean, Harmony House was Bob Dylan and I went to Musicland that was like Steve Forbert, you know, or whatever. And so I got, I remember working at Musicland and I got a job there. I applied, got a job and I was getting $3.15 an hour. I remember wow. like getting that paycheck, you know, it was like you worked 41 hours and made like, $119 or whatever it was, just no money. But, you know, when you're a kid living at home, surrounded by music. And uh, so it was a great job. I got fired because, well, the manager said you have too many friends coming to visit and you're just you're just talking and babbling. And it's like, that's the thing that that these chain stores don't understand that used record stores get is it's you're built. I wasn't talking to friends. I was building a community yeah. in a, a, around music. Yeah. And yeah, they they were young kids and they were poor and they weren't going to be like, oh, I'm going to buy a record while I'm here. But the great thing about used stores is you can go hang out and meet people who have your your bug like you do. Yeah. Find out about shows, learn about a new band, join a band, start a band. Totally. Um, and so it's funny when I think about how different that kind of ideology of a store like that was versus the used record stores i worked at later that was all about let's get tell all your friends to come hang out and we'll go outside and smoke cigarettes and put on the new like life's rich pageant and like talk about it you know the clerks at the stores they would tell you like you know like somebody would come up and and uh you know have like the the first prince record or something you know there was a guy at our store who was like now there, I'm talking. You're now you're talking. You know, and right. then he was like a big Prince fan, and right, you know, like be, be way before anybody knew who Prince was, or uh-huh. you know, like. And I had a manager, you know, of course, who was into Springsteen and Elvis Costello. It wasn't really pop, like pop music wasn't big. You know, it was like rock music was big, right? Power and Record Factory. You know, like right. it was still rock and roll and. You know, maybe, maybe, you'd, you know, you'd have like, you know, of course, like, you know, the Cindy Lauper record would be the big seller or Madonna, but that still didn't feel like pop music, you know? No, it's different. I'm an old curmudgeon and I'm just like, yeah, that was so much better, you know? Well, but, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it was just different, you know? And like, yeah. And I mean, I'm, thank God, I, you know, I got to experience that. 
I worked at Grooves in San Francisco since 2003. I was a customer there from when I moved to San Francisco. And when the owners, it was him and his wife, when she passed away, he said, hey, I'm going to need some help here. And I've, I've worked there since 2003. And um, I'm back at just over 315 an hour, but uh, uh, adjusted for inflation, you know, but not much. I actually retired. I just, oh. I just retired yesterday. No way. I, yeah, it was really kind of hard to do because it it's like, I mean, 20 years, I've been alive 50 years and I was there 20 some years, 20 years, just about That's amazing. And, you know, it's like anything that it's kind of like leaving something that you've done for so long, especially as you get older, it's harder because it's like it's sort of admitting that like all that time has come and gone. You know what I mean? And like if you just stay there, you kind of remain and that it's still 2006 you know what i mean it's always like a safe place for me and there god there were so many times i'd be on tour and i would think i'm in i'm in uh you know bordeaux france and god what i would pay to just be sitting at grooves behind the counter listening to burt Bacharach with like yeah. nobody in here and just <laughs> relaxing it was hard to let go but i did so you know you can play records for your kid and and yeah that's, that's i mean that's a pretty fun fun thing you know like to see what they kind of uh grab onto you know what have you and your daughter bonded on musically well she was born in australia and um i had most of my records there right so she'd take stuff out and just you know be all over the ground and Uh it'd be kind of fun to go like oh she likes you know uh the stranglers but then when she kind of started understanding music a little more we would play uh, Dream Police. And oh, she wow. just loved Side One and Dream Police. And wow. it would just be like, you know, spin me around during, you know, like, uh, <laughs> what's the, there's some number third song is like uh, kind of a dark kind of uh, song on that record, you know. The Dream Police, they come to me in my no, no lyrics, you know, still, I mean, still, she, I think she still does. But, but yeah, there's moments like that, but, but, um, now she's really into K-pop. Okay. And um, <laughs> I'm kind of in this little dilemma because it's like, she's, I mean, it's great because she's really into it. And she's like collecting like CDs and posters. These bands and, you know, like most of them are pretty good, but it's, you know, it's pop music. And, uh, you know, I've heard it, heard it all before, obviously. And, and, uh, but it's good to see that she kind of connects with it. Right. And, you know, like, and I know eventually she'll kind of come back from the dark side. But then she, she was, she came to the, you know, Primavera shows and was like, you know, videotaping. And I, and then I, I saw the, saw the video of it. And she's like singing along to all my songs. That is so cool. Well, it's like us. I mean, we were kids and I wanted a Simon LeBon haircut. I mean, I still love Duran Duran and all, but you know, at, at some point you move on from the pop stuff. My- if you're in a musical household like you you have, I mean, it's it's uh, they're gonna they're gonna turn out okay. Through osmosis. It's funny because when she's around and we play music, I have like a bug in me that's like like I have to up my game of music. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I brought her home and it was like I'm going to put, I get better put on Sun Ra or, uh, you know, Rashawn Roland Kirk or, uh, or, or, uh, you know, Gilberto, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. and it's all like Desafinado. And, and like, I had to kind of class up my music for the kid. Like I, I was like, I don't want to play her anything shitty. You know what I mean? At this tender age, I've caught myself like almost <laughs> like being the cool guy at the party let me throw on some pharaoh sanders for you kid because i'm smart and i know i kind of did that where i i bought this fella cootie box set and and would play this record and she oh well that's great man that i play this song every morning to wake her up wow and now i'm like all right i'm gonna like i'm gonna completely go crazy and say so i went into this <laughs> great record shop here in san Luis obispo yeah it's been around for like 50 years. I went into like the world music section and went like, all right, I'm going to get like, like uh, <laughs> um, all this crazy, like uh, African and, uh, um, you know, West African kind of like uh, stuff that I've always wanted to buy on a record. But, and so I've been playing it every night, you know, like, 
you know, just see, maybe she'll peek her head out. Yeah. Wow. So, Hey, I, I got an email from your agent and we're going to play a show together in January. Three shows. I thought, are we doing three shows? Oh no. You're the, I'm, Oh, the spiral oh, tour. I'm, yeah. I'm playing, I'm playing on the medley attack tour. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm talking about the important stuff. Yes, please. That would be great if you could. I think we're playing San Francisco or Oakland in January for uh, medley attack, medley world tour attack. Yeah, West yeah. Coast attack. So you're gonna are you getting the band back together for some for some shows for that from uh, like San Diego to Seattle or something like that? I mean, it's it's really it's going to be a hard one because we have to re- you know I mean you can't replace Matt Harris on bass because he's so important. And, yeah. Uh, such a history and but uh yeah i mean so we'll see how it goes when do your pavement shows end pavement shows end in mid-november so you get home you chill for december and then kind of yeah and then i'll start kind of rehearsing and and yeah what convinced you to get back to loading your own gear and getting in the small stinky van with five men. I'm already trying to get out of it. I'm oh, okay. So we, we may, we may not play this show <laughs> or just play one show. We'll see how it goes. I think once I start rehearsing some songs, I'll be into it. I really like the record and there's a lot of fans who have kind of been asking us to play. I've still got a pavement ashtray. I don't think we're bringing that back, but okay, that's pretty rare item. Oh, good. I'd better bring it in from the backyard. Mark Eibel was really into like making sure we had socks. Okay. And a long sleeve shirt. Uh huh. I I wanted a a like a a program like you know like we to go to shows like Roxy Music 1977. Yeah, like, or yeah. even REM like had programs. Yeah, like yeah, or, or yeah. Okay. I'm in charge of the program. And then there's some some new shirts and some uh pennants. They're gonna do these pennant posters and uh there was talk about some tennis balls. Oh fantastic. You throw to your dog or I'm all for stupid merch ideas. How about some foam fingers? That's a good idea. I had kind of lost my mind at one point and when I made a K Aura record, uh twenty eighteen or seventeen, and, and Allison and I were in front of the computer with this like crazy online vendor i did end up getting about 50 uh snow globes yeah that had like the cover with me sitting in the in a snow globe and but yeah i, I wanted to get foam fingers but you had to get a pallet of foam fingers and i was like you know like what am i going to do with 80 80 pounds of foam fingers like you know 500 foam fingers but pavement could move 500 foam fingers. <laughs> They're going to be mad at me for bringing this so late in the game. Just be like, guys, I've changed my mind on the program. It's going to be, a, I'm going foam, neon foam fingers. <laughs> so so you, you are opening for us three shows on the West Coast. So I am. I'm opening for pavement. I can't believe it. I'm really excited. I don't know how it happened, but um, I got an email <laughs> and I was real excited. Yeah. <laughs> I just toured Europe as a four-piece because Allison stayed home with our baby. So we're going to revert to the five-piece, and I'm going to be without guitar. Oh, my God. That's great. Prowling the stage. just Bro, like Allison's going to play. So Al's going to play guitar, and and then Doug Hilsinger on guitar, and Rusty on drums, and this kid, Corey, has been playing bass, who's been playing with me for the last year. So, yeah, we're going to kind of have a couple rehearsals when we get back and kind of change the who's plays what and remember this and all that around. But we did it a few times during COVID when uh, San Francisco wouldn't allow vocalists outside. So we had like a really weird show at the, at the chapel where I was in the building and I could only sing and they projected me on a wall. This was, it was done outside in the parking lot and they projected me on the wall and the band, the band was on a stage in the parking lot. So I was like 300 yards away, three floors up in a building with a monitor. Can you you do that for the pavement shows? Oh God, it would be great. (laughs) Then he could show me how to do it so I can do it from the, from the dressing room. I'm sure there's a way to zoom yourself in. That's kind of what I want to do on my tour as well. It's just, there's no, none of that pre-show stress. You're just like standing around with a microphone. I did a bunch of shows like that where I would just like four or five songs I would just not play guitar. Yeah, I remember that. Just be like, you know, Iggy Pop and just this is great. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> because, you know, when I when I play guitar, I mean, I got good banter and all, 
but I'm kind of tethered to the mic stand. You know, when you're singing a guitar and it's like my eyes are closed half the time and it's like, this seems, it's got to be so boring to watch. I mean, the songs are good and all, but like, come on, you know? So when you got somebody who's at least prowling around a little bit or doing a Bob Pollard kicks and stuff, it's going to be fun and everybody in the band is excited. And, you know, coming coming from uh, Manchester where we had, a guy from the Smiths and 30 other people, you know, to be playing in a room with 1,500 or 2,000 people is going to be so fun. And what what else is happening? With what? My life? I thought you were getting married. Is I'm that- getting married on the 21st of August. Oh, 21st of August. Yeah. Oh, so in about in Toronto or? In Toronto. Yeah. So Allison's from Toronto. Her family's here. My family's coming from Detroit. We're going to hang out for like two days here, go out to dinner and then have a back backyard wedding. Very casual, like no ties required. And um, yeah, I'll be a married man. I had the baby first and got married second. And um, I waited as long as I could for both of them. <laughs> I just kept putting it off. And, um, you know, so right. You know, you understand. Did yeah. you Were you married first with baby or did you guys have the baby first? We I was married first yes okay okay you're a good christian yeah i mean you know it's kind of for me and al i think it's like we've got a baby we're obviously together but yes. uh it's important to the family to uh, do totally. it so, totally. you know and good for taxes and maybe i can become a canadian citizen and avoid the onslaught of the next four years All right yeah we're gonna be we're probably moving back to australia and uh at the end of the, the end of this next summer is that right? To Brisbane or Melbourne? Melbourne. Mornington Peninsula, where we were previously. Well, now you can start that band with Les uh Les Pattinson. Oh my god. I know. If I if uh, he won't be uh scared to uh to see me because of the COVID uh lockdown. Oh. We, we were like basically we were two miles apart. Right. And this is Les from the Bunnymen, all you people out there. Yes. I know. Of all of all places to like, you know, like he ended up there. Yeah. He ended up there and I ended up there. And then and then they locked everybody down. And it was just like, oh, hey, Les, you know, like, uh, you wanna and he's like, Well, maybe we we shouldn't, you know, like, and I was like, Well, I'm leaving. I got these Steve King like paintings for you. And well, you'll have to give them to me when you come back, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I think you gave me a have you gave me a Steve King heaven up here. I asked him, I I, I said, Hey, can you send me, you know those bunnyman ones and, and some other stuff and he he sent me like 10 of each because that's oh, how he does, that's how oh he does God. work he just does everything right so i'm like oh you know well kelly i like this one and right <laughs> uh less like this one there's a steve keen book coming out i think right there's a steve keen book out now yep it's uh yeah it's really cool it's all of his uh kind of history and everything he's done the book's really great you know and he's a cool guy he's been you know we've known him for forever well speaking of the artwork who did the artwork for medley attack ashad simonian oh ashad okay yeah it, i think it's great it's a great image he's done all my stuff and, and that and i told him i said this might be the last record since he's done the other three yeah the, the last two I said, why don't you try to make it so it kind of goes with the others, like a triptych, you know? Right. Because these are the records I've done closest together. If I think about Medley Attack and the Hypnotize cover, and then the one with the daggers with the knife, the, they the all daggers. kind of... That's the, one you That's the one you played on. I played a lot on that one, yeah. and um, But they all have that kind of paper collage yep. look to yeah, it. He's really, he's really great. He did, and then he did the one that my first kind of spiral stair solo record which was which had a picture of a um a dead uh oh the raccoon raccoon with a bunch yeah. of pills of pills around <laughs> it the real feel <laughs> the real feel yeah yeah so, yeah he's a alumnus of 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 some some great central valley bands like early mart and yes anti-lions and he's been been around for a long time friend yeah well the art's great so were you happy with you're happy with the new record i'm happy with the new record it was really hard to make and yeah you went through some hell yeah it being bittersweet but uh i'm really happy with it you seem to they put up you know put out records like uh kind of in your sleep you know like you can put out just amazing pop gems and in uh it's 
five a year, you know, like me, it takes, it takes me a while. We'll see if I can get to the next one. Do you ever feel like, like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I have a studio at my house and I play most of the instruments on my records myself. So for me, I've always said making my records is like some people like you, you might be an oil painter and I'm just happy taking a Polaroid. You know what I mean? That's always kind of how I've described the way I work. I want to make one and get on to the next one. And I hear a, a melody and a guitar part and I can't wait to add the piano. And, and it's like a, it's almost like a rush to be able to sit back and listen to the whole thing. And that has its that has its good points and bad points because there's plenty of times when I look at my Polaroid and go, you know, if I would have spent a little more time getting a good drum sound, singing a better lyric or whatever, I w I wish I would have taken the time sometimes when I look back. But it's you know it is what it is. It's for me, it's like a document of a day over a period of a year. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, but you know any but I like Leonard Cohen and he took five years to make records so. However you arrive at it, it's like, it's cool. Nobody should be in a race to have more stuff. No, 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 no. Um, but I had a period last year. I didn't have anything, man. I didn't know. Really? For the first time in my life, I was just sort of like, my tank was empty. And it was like, you know when you go to the dentist and they put that x-ray, yeah. that thing on your chest to keep the x-ray? I felt heavy and like, oh I felt like this weight. And it was like, I don't want to be in here. Wow. And then you start getting these mind games where it's like, well, maybe it's like Barton Fink. It's like, maybe I'll never write another play. I, I got no more ideas, you know? And it was like, I, and I've, and you, you and I, we've been in this long enough to know that it's a big cycle and you keep, you know, you keep at it and, and sooner or later it starts to turn again. So I've been kind of going back to some things I made over the last year and finding a few good things, but it, it's definitely, I'm at a, I'm at a loose end a little bit right now. You can always write songs about your kid. Today I was thinking, I was sitting there singing a song to her that I was making up like, <laughs> what is it? Right, right below your eyes in the middle of your face since the beginning of time for the whole human race. You got a nose, you got a nose. And it'll help you sniff around or something like that. You know, maybe I'm like that old, I'm that 50 year old dad and it's time to really make millions of dollars writing oh, yeah. this, some little kids record. You can move to LA and be one of those guys. Yeah. Like end up writing for like Paw Patrol or something like that. So I'm sure the inquiring fans want to know is does pavement write new stuff at sound checks? Is there any time where you guys are like, I don't feel like playing gold sounds today. Can we just have a jam and go well, somewhere? Kind of, we haven't really had any sound checks to do that in yet. I mean, we've done have just been the songs, but yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I I really hope so. I don't I don't know if it's going to happen. I can't really say, but yeah, I hope so. I've actually got a song I want to bring in, bring to everybody. It was uh huh. It's uh there was this band used to drive around in a big old brown van. Did lots of shows. Didn't really put stuff much up their nose. Uh, I don't know why people thought they were hip. They were more missed than hit. So just imagine that with like, you know, like a good pavement riff and uh, there's a pavement song. Very good. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. We'll see, man. Cool. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Talk House Podcast and thanks to Kelly Stoltz and Scott Camberg for chatting. If you liked what you heard, check out both of their new albums and of course, follow Talk House on your favorite podcasting platform. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan and the Talk House theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time. <laughs>